Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Cave Movahead. Monday last week was Indigenous Peoples Day, and there were protests in Santa Fe at the monument to Kit Carson, the controversial frontiersman turned Indian agent who enacted a scorched earth attack on Diné people that led to the long walk and years of imprisonment and suffering. Two years ago on Indigenous Peoples Day, there were protests in Santa Fe that ended with the toppling of the Soldiers Monument in the plaza. And just a few months earlier, protests and violence in Albuquerque led to the removal of statues of the brutal conquistador Juan de Oñate in Albuquerque and in Alcalde, just north of Española. Española. Santa Fe removed a statue of conquistador Don Diego de Vargas at the same time. But today, we're not going to focus on the statues. Instead, we'll talk about the history, attitudes, and conversations around them in the past and those how those are evolving today. Is there space to find common ground? How can we work toward better cultural competency and compassion? How do we honestly embrace our history? We want to hear from you, too. Share your ideas about how we can memorialize our past fairly by emailing us at letstalk at KUNM.org or call in live at 505-277-5866. Let's start the show with our first guest this morning. We have Elena Ortiz on the phone today from Santa Fe. Elena is an educator and organizer and works with the Red Nation Santa Fe Freedom Council. Good morning, Elena. Good morning. Nice to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if, you know, the, Span- the Spanish began the colonization of New Mexico in 1540. And it was a place where there were already many thriving cultures and traditions. What were some of the biggest impacts that shaped what became New Mexico, what, where we, what we are now? The colonization of New Mexico by the Spanish was a traveling show of horrors. Um, first, the imposition of a patriarchal culture on peaceful matrilineal societies um, created a violence on this land that reverberates to this day. The institution of uh, patriarchal government um, on Pueblos, the institution of a patriarchal religion on the Pueblos, which just decimated um, the existence of our, our peaceful subsistence farming um, lives. And that continues to this day. There's no, um, it's no coincidence that right now we're dealing with the same issues with the boarding schools and the Catholic Church, um, the abuse of of children in the boarding schools that that still exist to this day, um, and missing and murdered Indigenous women. All of these issues that face Native communities today are a direct result of this settler colonialism that came with the Spanish. Okay, thank you. And, you know, when we're talking about, we, you know, I started kind of describing some of these monuments to conquistadors. Uh, a lot of this, uh, the controversy now is rooted in the brutality that they enacted on people. Can you kind of maybe describe some of that? I mean, notably the Pueblo Revolt, but 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 what else? Well, so Or prior to the Pueblo Revolt, leading to the Pueblo Revolt. I'm sorry. Certainly. So the, the Oñate himself um, was a rapist, a murderer, um, started the process of genocide, genociding the native populations um, here in northern New Mexico. Um, his attack on Acoma is, is very well known historically. Um, and the reason why that statue, as soon as it went up in Alcalde, um, 
got its foot chopped off. Um, but he was probably one of the first sex traffickers. Um, he sent women, um, Pueblo women, into Spanish households to serve. Um, and many of them were subject to incredible sexual violence by the conquistadors, by the soldiers, and by the, the Catholic Church. So that legacy of violence um, exists today um, in these statues and monuments around northern New Mexico. Um, and even down as far as El Paso, there's Oñate in El Paso as well. So when we as indigenous women see these statues and monuments and the names of the schools and the names of the streets, all we see are our ancestors being brutalized by these people. And it's been said before, and it can be said until we're hoarse. It matters who you elevate. And elevating these people with statues and monuments um, is an affront and an act of violence on our own homelands. This is native land, make no mistake. Seated or unseated, everything in New Mexico is native land. Okay, and you know we are and memorial these names have no place here. Thank you, thank you. It's early in the show. We already have a caller. That's kind of abnormal for us. But Chris, calling from Santa Fe, uh, you're on. Go ahead. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm a local, uh, born and raised in Santa Fe, and uh, I believe I have a novel that I've written, Baron Oil Reality 101, available on Amazon. And it covers a lot of the local history and history of the indigenous people and what they went through when the Spanish people and other Europeans arrived and simply took what had been theirs for thousands of years. And I think it covers a lot of the viewpoints of the indigenous people and how they reacted and to the, to the conquest and the conquistadors. And, and I think it has a strong bearing today. It's called Barron Oil Reality 101, and it's centered around Dick Barron. He's a philanthropist, a retired oil producer, and he's seen the, the error of his ways. And he's come to Santa Fe to, uh, to make amends. And I think it has a strong, strong bearing on our world today, as well as the history of New Mexico. And it does cover a lot of history of Santa Fe and the state in general and Abiquiu, and and it covers the Long March uh, here that uh, when the uh, indigenous peoples were located to the Pecos River. Okay, Chris, that sounds interesting. I guess I'm not familiar with the name. Is Baron a fictional character? Is this historical fiction? Yes, it, it is historical fiction, and it's, um, in my view, it's very well written. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Uh, you know, on the line, we do also have, I'm going to go ahead and introduce another guest. Uh, we have Andrew Leo Lovato. Andy is a retired professor. He's also an author and the former City of Santa Fe historian. He has some really great TED Talks online, too, where he challenges people to confront history and think towards the future. Thanks for coming on the show, Andy. Can you hear us okay? Uh, I sure can. Yes. Hello. Good morning. Great. Thanks for being here. Uh, I wonder, you've spent something like four decades in higher education. Uh, What sort of reaction do you have when you hear about people writing historical fiction about kind of, you know, traumatic events? Is it helpful? 
Well, I, I think it is helpful. I, I think that, um, you know, even though dialogue and um, bringing all of this to the surface is contentious and painful, it's really an opportunity to bring uh, to the surface what's existed for many years and many centuries, actually. And this is a great shift in Santa Fe and I think across the nation. And we should embrace this. Uh, we want reconciliation to be a part of a process, uh, and the way this is going to happen is really through um, having dialogue and uh, bringing to the surface all of these uh, issues that have for so long uh, been uh, not you know, part of the conversation. Okay, Elena, and I wondered... Do you kind of feel the same way that as long as we're talking about these things, it's a positive step? And I, you know, I could imagine that especially a lot of Native people might be real sensitive about something like that. I don't think that a non Indigenous novelist has any right writing about the trauma that Native people went through. And I think it is really um, trauma porn, and it has no place in in this kind of discussion. I'd also like to address what Mr. Lovato said. Um, With all due respect, reconciliation is dead. Reconciliation has been dead since the mayor ordered SWAT teams and militarized police presence to confront peaceful protesters during the Entrada. Um, reconciliation died um, with a quarter of a million dollars that went to chart and, and came, came out with a report that basically offers no solutions, no, no healing, no history, just opinions that we've heard for decades um, that have never been helpful, that have never addressed Native concerns. Reconciliation is dead. Okay, and I will mention for listeners that we do have Valerie Martinez joining the show in just a bit. I'm not going to go to her right now, but she was the co-director of the chart project for the city of Santa Fe, kind of spending a year investigating. It's an acronym, uh, Culture, History, Art, Reconciliation, and Truth. We will talk quite a bit more about that later in the hour. Um, But, Elena, I guess I want to know – I want to make sure we're all on the same page with what we think of as reconciliation. When you say it's dead, what does it you mean? I mean that the efforts put forth by the politicians um, in Santa Fe and the leaders of these so-called groups that are supposed to be um, addressing these historical inaccuracies and this revisionist history um, are all coming from a, a perspective that has no bearing on the reality on the ground today. So when we protested the Entrada, um, it was because people like me, indigenous people who grew up in the Santa Fe public school system, were consistently being, being violated and having violence enacted upon us by having conquistadors come and sing and dance in our public schools as children. And we were out there on the streets year after year having guns pointed at us, being arrested, being manhandled by the police. And the only way that finally ended 
was by having one of my comrades being arrested and her picture being broadcast all around the United States made the New York Times. And we were the ones who ended the Entrada. And yet politicians and um, so-called leaders of communities brought in a group of Los Caballeros de Vargas, the Santa Fe Fiesta Council, um, the city of Santa Fe. They never spoke to those of us on the streets. They never spoke to those of us to whom this is personal. And this is, is, has happened to us year after year after year. So when I say reconciliation is dead, I'm saying none of us, none of the stakeholders who were on the streets and are still on the streets to this day are ever, ever invited to the table to, to discuss these things. They're not talking to the people who are, who are actually impacted by these festivals, by these conquistador statues. And change is not going to come from politicians. Changes come, change comes from the people. Change comes from below and to the left. It comes to those of us who are willing to put our bodies on the line to make the difference and to change things. What created crisis cannot solve crisis. Okay, thank you. Um, I think I'd like to go to Andy Lovato for a little bit of background, but maybe a reaction too. Uh, Andrew, you wrote a book called Santa Fe Hispanic Culture in which you have a whole chapter about the Fiesta de Santa Fe. And you know that includes the Entrada that uh, Elena just mentioned. Can you kind of... Give us some background on that fiesta. When did it start? What was the purpose? Has that changed over time? Well, the fiesta began originally as as, as a, a celebration um, by the Spanish um, in, in regards to their reentry into Santa Fe in, in, in 1692 and 1693, and um, it. Uh, was a celebration at that time uh, looking at the uh, honoring the uh, statue of La Conquistadora and her, uh, the, the, her, her role in helping the Spanish to, to, to uh, retake Santa Fe. And I agree that um, the basis of the Santa Fe Fiesta is a... Uh, celebration that is based on the uh, reconquest of a people uh, by the Spanish. And, 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 you know, the very nature of that was, uh, is something that I can understand would cause great consternation. Um, The Santa Fe Fiesta um, has evolved over the years um, when the, uh, we had other influences uh, also from uh, people from the eastern part of the United States who came and made it more of a civic celebration, uh, bringing in things such as, you know, what we have today, the, the uh, hysterical historical uh, parade, the, the pet parade. Uh, and and it's evolved with time from less of a religious celebration by the Spanish to more of a civic celebration. Um, but I, I, I completely understand that, you know, the, the very basis of Fiesta 
can uh, cause great consternation to many people. Okay, thank you, Andy. I'm sorry to jump in, but we do have to pause for just a moment. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. We're taking your calls about how we've memorialized our history in New Mexico. Call us at 505-277-5866. We'll be right back. Support provided by the NM Phil with pianist Sylvia Teresa performing Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 2. Program includes Romeo and Juliet and the 1812 Overture. October 22nd, 6 p.m. at Pope Joy. Info at nmphil.org. Please join us in thanking our business and nonprofit underwriters for their continued financial support. Because of their support, our mission will continue as your trusted source of award-winning local news and music. KUNM, powered by you. Composer Billy Childs wrote this as a companion to a piano piece by Maurice Ravel. Ravel's work is about a fiendish goblin. Billy Childs has a different scenario in mind. I'll tell you all about it on the next Performance Today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Kaveh Movahead. We're talking to... Elena Ortiz. Uh, we also have Andrew Lovato on the line and more guests to come this hour. Thanks for joining us. Um, do you think the history you learned in school was fair to the different groups of people who live in New Mexico? Call 505-277-5866 or tweet to us with the hashtag Let's Talk NM. Uh, we have an email here I'd like to read. It's from David in, I believe, in Santa Fe. Uh, it says, why do monuments have to commemorate, commemorate painful events or people who've caused harm? How about monuments to celebrate the good events and the good people in our communities? Now, Andy, I think I want to go to you with that. I kind of assume that people create monuments and memorials thinking they are celebrating something good. Would you agree? Uh, yes. Uh, when monuments are created, uh, oftentimes um, they reflect the way uh, a location or society feels about its own history. And either consciously or unconsciously, this can reflect an attitude of superiority or dominance. And we're seeing this movement all across the United States. You know, Santa Fe is really just a microcosm of what's going on across the country where people are taking a hard second look at uh, what kind of attitudes the uh, monuments reflected uh, and continue to reflect and what... um, and, and do we want to continue to have these same type of, of attitudes towards uh, the past? I think, you know, history in itself is being uh, looked at much more carefully. Uh, there's a renewed interest, I think, uh, recently in history because we're coming to realize that history is not just the purview of uh librarians and academics and and stuck in dusty books. It's actually something that uh, reflects on current self-identity, the hierarchy in our society, and uh, also continues to carry the wounds of cultures that uh, are carried on for many generations. So this second look 
at monuments is, I think, part of a overall look at do we want history to be reflected fairly? And um, I think that's an important issue to think about. Uh, is, 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 is there a movement going on? I know there's a few politicians across the country right now who are trying to suppress history or trying to even revise history. But I don't think their efforts are going to be successful in the long run because, um, you know, people are, are demanding truth, I think, right now. And uh, I, I think that's an important movement, and we should take advantage of this, this uh movement right now and this renewed interest in in fairness and equity. Okay, Elena Ortiz from Red Nation, do you want to respond to that? Sure. Um, And I'm going to disagree again. uh, Statues and monuments rarely reflect the attitudes of the people of, of that time. Instead, they reflect the attitudes of the people who pay to have them built. And just like in Santa Fe, what, we've, what we have constructed, um, both around fiestas, but also around the statues and monuments, is this desire to make Santa Fe into this tourist town that it has become. And really the fiestas, and, and, and I think Mr. Lovato referred to this when he said there was influences from people in the East. They weren't just influences. Um, the, the entire... Santa Fe community was transformed by Edgar Lee Hewitt and his band of grave diggers who came out here to dig and um, dig up the bones of our ancestors and created the Southwest School for Archaeology. Um, and from that point, decided that they needed a museum to hold the, these artifacts and um, created the Museum of New Mexico. Um, which then attracted all of the artists out here. And when Santa Fe became a tourist destination, Fiestas was transformed from a religious festival um, into this cosplay with Don Diego de Vargas and his merry band of murderers um, who came every year to the schools and who declared um, the, the entire city of Santa Fe to be under Spanish rule, um, standing on the corner of the plaza where 27 of our religious leaders were hung um, for practicing our traditional life ways. So this is what Santa Fe has become. And these monuments and memorials were put up by the very people who created this Adobe Disneyland. Okay, thank you. Um, and if you want to dig into the history of, in particular, the Soldiers Monument, which we haven't talked to uh, talked about too much yet today. Uh, We have links to a really nice article called Centering Truths Not So Evident by former state historian Esteban Real Galvez. You can find that on the webpage for this show at KUNM.org. And since we're kind of, you know, again, flirting with the talk about statues in particular. This is a good time. I think that I bring Michelle Mendez on the line. She called in from the city of Albuquerque. She works in the Office of Equity and Inclusion. Good morning, Michelle. Okay, we'll come right back to Michelle in just a moment. Uh, Give us a moment for Michelle. Instead, let's bounce back to... Hello. Oh, there she is. <laughs> Thanks for joining okay. us, Michelle. Um, yeah. 
we were talking about some of the monuments in Santa Fe that have come down or are coming down or hope to potentially be coming down. Uh, and that made me think of the Oñate statue in Albuquerque, which is no longer on display by the Albuquerque Museum out front. Uh, where is it now? Uh, I don't know. It's hidden away where it should be, out of public view. Uh, I first want to just really recognize and appreciate the history and the truth that Elena Ortiz is bringing to this morning's talk. And also to mention that I felt it was very inappropriate for that first caller to get on and really turn the attention to himself. He didn't sound like a Native person because he was referring to they and peddling a book, which is very, very typical of what Elena's talking about in terms of constantly profiting and trying to, you know, be the voice of the history of this people. And it really needs to be told by the people of this of this land, of this native land. So sorry for that preface, but it just really struck me as very typical of the kind of behavior that we're trying to counter. So in the city of Albuquerque, you know, to answer your question, the Oñata statue was put away into storage in June of 2020 because of the violence that it was causing. And um, an in-depth process took place over a period of many months to get many, many different opinions and voices into a dialogue on what should become of the statue and of the La Jornada installation as a whole. And uh, a group of people, 1,500 people, gave their input and the recommendations were that it should never be returned to where it was first installed and that the whole La Jornada should be uh, re-characterized or re-contextualized so that there is audio and signage and education so that people who do come to learn about New Mexico's history learn the true history of, of this part of the world. And so, and that there is a need for more input into whatever becomes of the statue if it ever goes anyplace else. And so those recommendations were made through a, a very intensive community process and they were made to the city council in the latter part of June, or excuse me, uh, 2020, and there's been no action taken since. And so that's where that lies. But I think the lesson that it really taught the entire city of Albuquerque government is how important it is to really get input and meaningful tribal consultation in particular when the subject of the controversy is involves Native people who were colonized or attempted colonization in this part of the country. And so we've taken that to heart, especially as it relates to the 4-H park, which is a sacred burial site for people uh, buried from the Albuquerque Indian School. So I can tell you more about that, or there's resources on our website, but just how deeply we've been engaging with community and with tribal governments, uh, a government-to-government consultation to come to a decision collectively about what should happen with that burial site. And what is that website for listeners who might want to go check it out? It's cabq.gov slash OEI for Office of Equity and Inclusion. There's a lot of different, I can give you the specific you know, pages within there, 
that give that history and, and the next steps for that process. Okay. Now, you just mentioned that the city learned a lesson about kind of getting public input, but I can't help but wonder if the lesson was lost, if there hasn't been any action. Is there still a conversation going uh, within the city about where to go next or what to do next? Or was the solution simply to remove the statue and move on? And it's not back at its site. So that part, you know, it's been resolved for now. Okay. Uh, We have another caller, Aldo Carrasco from Santa Fe is on the line. Aldo, go ahead. Okay. um, Wow. (laughs) I didn't think I was going to get on the line so quickly. I think, yes, I think for sure uh, when you posed the question over the air about whether or not the history we were taught in our schools was fair. Uh, It was like I was saying earlier, it it, it was anything but fair. It was definitely, definitely uh, whitewashed. It was filtered. Um, There were a lot of a lot of things we didn't learn about even the the very community that we grew up in. I grew up in southeastern New Mexico in a small farming community outside of Roswell. And uh, in fact, uh, just eight miles away, was a small community by the name uh, that they refer to as Blackdom, that which could have become probably one of the most affluent uh, black communities in America, if, if not the Southwest. And we never covered that. And it was just one semester of New Mexico history is what we what we had. And we what what, what did we discuss? We didn't discuss the Pueblo Revolt. We didn't discuss any of the massacres wrought he, uh, in in Colorado and in other states. Never did we discuss those, but we certainly discussed the housing of the Indians, uh, the indigenous peoples. We uh, we discussed the mourning doves and 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 how they fared their young. It was it was so soft and so it was just, it was something like. And why did we get taught, why did we get that history taught in junior high? Is beyond me. I, I wish we had actually covered that in high school. And I definitely learned a lot more about this state having grown up here for the last 48 years um, on my own and outside of school. And so anyway, that's all I have to add. And I, I really appreciate that you're covering the subject. Thank you, Aldo. Thanks for calling and sharing your experience. I'd like to introduce another guest on the phone from San Antonio. We have Aime Villarreal. She's an assistant professor of anthropology at Texas State University, and she's from Santa Fe. Thanks for joining us this morning, Aime. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I'd also like to add that I am a New Mexico scholar. Uh, unfortunately, I I live outside of New Mexico at the moment. Well, we hope to get you back someday soon. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. We've talked a lot about the ideas behind monuments and memorialization celebrations like the Santa Fe Fiesta this morning. And then we've just kind of dug into with this last caller uh, ideas of truth in history and what we're teaching in schools. You are a college educator and you have a lot of exposure to younger minds. I wonder what you think about this kind of uh is it fair to call it a trope that the history being taught in schools is not fair or accurate? Yes, absolutely. Um, This has been a consistent problem. And I remember growing up in Santa Fe, I um, went to the Vargas Middle School, the Vargas Junior High School, named after, of course, the Conquistador that supposedly reunified uh, New Mexico following the 1680 Pueblo Revolt. And uh, going into school every day, there was a mural on the side of the wall with uh, the Vargas and his 
uh, military garb and riding on a horse. And our mascot was actually the Conquistadores. And so imagine cheering for your team. Go Conquistadores. <laughs> you know? um, and I kind of had a feeling that something was wrong with this. Um, but I didn't really have the language to explain it uh, because the management of consciousness was so strong. And um, every year we'd have the fiesta organizations and the uh, you know pageantry come into our school and we'd have a big assembly and, and we'd celebrate fiesta and dance with the, the men portraying the Vargas and the fiesta queen. And it was exciting, and it was a time where you got out of school early, and it was actually the only time in which we got to celebrate ethnic Mexican culture. I mean, it was under this rubric of Spanish conquistadores and Spanish heritage, but we're playing Mexican music, Spanish music, mariachi music, and so it was a time that we looked forward to. But again, those narratives were very limited and also in a way damaging because it gave us a very narrow view of our culture and our history. And um, of course, the Vargas Junior High is now Milagro Middle School. It has been floored, it no longer exists. Um, and so I guess that's some kind of Milagro in a way as we move forward for young people to start. Uh, having a more nuanced and maybe a more inclusive understanding of ourselves within our culture. And these are the kinds of things you're researching now, right? I think that's what you call Chicanic spiritual politics and performance. How do we see that kind of thing represented by, you know, is that what we're seeing represented by monuments and other memorial ceremonies? And what we have to remember about monuments and memorials and even the pageantry associated with them, that they mobilize historical narratives in particular ways. Um, and they're not necessarily rooted in historical facts, but in memory. And memory is something different. Memory is not necessarily um doesn't necessarily have to be rooted in historical facts. It mobilizes history in order to respond to our present conditions. And so for Nuevo Mexicanos or some Nuevo Mexicanos, um, these uh, conquistador narratives and, and imagery have been compelling and have been alluring because they speak to present day circumstances and um, I think also um, anti-Mexican sentiment. Uh, There is no anti-Mexican sentiment, anti-indigeneity, anti-blackness has been around a very long time. And um, a conquistador heritage, of course, allows some populations to claim whiteness, uh, a relationship to whiteness, to Europeanness, uh, to claim a valiant history, not one of being conquered, um, enslaved, or abused. It allows them to um, make uh, a claim to, to inclusiveness in a way that we do in American culture in general, 
so the grand narratives of uh, U.S. history that we're often excluded from, as Aldo, the speaker, talked about, <laughs> uh, the last caller talked about, that we, uh, this whitewashed history is rooted in great men and their monuments, yes. And so it was a way to uh, have some kind of parity and respectability when there weren't very many other avenues, especially for, I would say, my grandparents, you know, in the 1950s. Um, they didn't have any other real options of how to identify themselves except through the lens of assimilation. Because often as uh, minority subjects, as racialized subjects, we have had to prove our worthiness for citizenship. We've had to prove our worthiness to inclusion and belonging. And these narratives were compelling and effective um, for that purpose at a particular time. And I think what we're seeing now is that those narratives have come under scrutiny and under question, and maybe they do not serve the same purpose as they did in the past and need to change. Okay, I think you've kind of given a great description of the difference then and the reasons for the difference between memory and maybe a more accurate history. and. Maybe some reasons that we need to kind of revisit our history and make sure there's a little more truth there. We have to go to a quick break. You're listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahed. Stay right there. We'll be back in just a minute. Some tribes are regaining ownership of ancestral land by way of donations from individuals, conservation groups, or governments. The donations typically don't have the full trust protections of reservation land, but are building a network of tribally controlled properties that are culturally important. We'll talk about the multifaceted process of Native land donations on the next Native America Calling. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. KUNM wants to help our listeners in Santa Fe with the removal of old vehicles now that the junk vehicle ordinance is in effect. We just learned that any junk vehicles that don't comply with the new ordinance could be subject to fines, and we want to help. If you have a junker that needs to be removed from your property, just give us a call. We'll come pick it up for free and turn that old car into support for KUNM. Call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227. Good morning. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We are taking your calls on how we might find common ground when it comes to our violent history. Can we reinterpret history without threatening people's identities? Call 505-277-5866 and share your ideas. Uh, I mean, with some of the discussion we just had, I'm getting the idea that with the centuries of colonization and shifts in power among the different groups uh, in New Mexico, everyone's feeling maybe a little bit squeezed existentially and maybe even feeling that their identities are being threatened. These are legitimate concerns, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, symbolic protest is one of the ways and actual protests are one of the ways that we express those concerns. And if we're talking about Santa Fe in particular, at least since the 1980s, when Santa Fe kind of blew up on the national and international scape as a place of difference, as a place to come, um, you know, see art and experience, uh, you know, different cultures of the Southwest, it became iconic in a way. And we saw, of course, first 
you know, very rich Texans moving in and buying up property and building big houses and, and now it's the Californians and, you know, a lot of uh, very wealthy outsiders, which are, we call amenity migrants who come here um, to consume the culture and to um, be part of the landscape. Um, you know, the property ta- taxes started to rise. Uh, so did the expenses, you know, for working class folks in in the area, and they had to leave, and they mostly moved to Rio Rancho and other areas on the outskirts, or they moved to Albuquerque. Uh, some moved out of state and uh, kind of had to were, were displaced by um, you know these uh, wealthier uh, amenity migrants, and due to gentrification um, and. The fact that it's very difficult to live in Santa Fe. I, I worked for Somos Un Pueblo Unido, an immigrant rights organization, for uh, six years while I was living in Santa Fe. And um, most of the Mexicanos who work and Centroamericanos who work in the service industries uh, can't live in Santa Fe proper. They live in La Cienega, they live in Española, they live in the outskirts of town uh, because there is no affordable housing in Santa Fe, and it is, they do have a housing crisis. And the city council has long tried to resolve this issue without, um, you know, having rampant development or really changing the, the, the um, external, you know, kind of landscape of Santa Fe. Uh, and people are really having a hard time living there. And the issues, the economic inequalities, um, climate change, uh, you know, the fact that there's been this displacement that has gone on for centuries and, and violence, which continues in a variety of ways. And so these attacks, you know, at the, they're, they're real, you know, they, they have to do with how we're feeling about ourselves and our identities, but also they speak to these broader issues of violence that we experience on a daily basis, you know, as people of color, but also because we are feeling um, in a way disempowered to change the economic conditions in which we live. Oh, my gosh. And, I, um, yeah. I, I feel like there is really no escape from the lack of affordable housing, no matter what topic we're talking about in New Mexico these days. And that's not just Santa Fe anymore. That's Albuquerque, too, and elsewhere. Uh, we do. The, the phone lines are filling up. We have a caller, Eddie from Albuquerque. Eddie, go ahead. Yes. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, I just want to call it out. The conversation is very enlightening to myself. I'm not from New Mexico. I'm originally from Mobile, Alabama. But um, I moved out here, and the the subject about the schools, that right there really resonated with me because I find a little bit of a letdown that there's a culture out here that's being lost. Um, And I've often wondered, why don't they have these native cultures and their languages being taught in the public schools and, uh, you know, just in the state period. Um, it reminds me of, like I said, where I'm from, a lot of forcibly implanted people were there, and that's how culture was really destroyed, you know, taking away um, cultural um, events and languages and then rewriting them for them. And, and it was almost like the folks that were doing the rewriting were 
uplifting themselves and making them comfortable with the actions that they were doing. Um, I, I really love um, your conversations because my, you know, I'm very profane to New Mexican history, and I find it very sad to hear that um, that this happened out here also, like it happened in a lot of other places. Okay, thank you, Eddie. We do have another guest to bring in this hour. I quickly want to take one more phone call, though. We have Nelson from Albuquerque. Go ahead, Nelson. Uh, good morning. Um, I am a former professor of sociology at the University of New Mexico, and what I wanted to bring to it. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, we lost Nelson, but we do have Valerie Martinez. The director of Artful Life in Albuquerque is on the phone. She was also the core direct, co-director for the Chart Project, which spent about a year examining attitudes on culture, history, art, reconciliation, and truth. It's a acronym. Uh, that was for the city of Santa Fe. It was a project created after the Soldier's Monument in the plaza was torn down by protesters. Thanks for being here this morning, Valerie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we've covered so much this morning. I'm not exactly sure where to start, except that maybe we can kind of transition into talking about whether we can find ways to go forward. Um, the chart program spent about a year working towards gathering community voices and, you know, even building community. What was the ultimate goal of chart and what did y'all get to there? Well, the initiative was created after um, the events in 2020 around monuments and the city of Santa Fe governing body uh, uh, created a resolution. And I just want to quote from the resolution. It's cre it created the project. So it called for a process of community engagement that would encourage people to discuss the city's cultural histories and current viewpoints and seek solutions for a future of peace, tolerance, racial equity, social justice, healing and reconciliation, a process in which residents of the city and county could speak, be heard, and listen. And that was the language of the original resolution. So they issued an RFP, an open RFP for proposals uh, for organizations to lead the process, and um, Artful Life applied for that. And we were um, chosen to undertake dialogues, interviews, listening sessions, surveys, art activations for a period of a year. So the first thing we did was create an open call for a project team. 155 residents of Santa Fe applied for that. And we ended up with 15 people, a very diverse team of Santa Feans who were trained in community facilitation, and they engaged almost 1,400 residents over the course of a year with over 10,000 engagements. That meant that a lot of those people participated consistently. So I just want to encourage everyone to read the report at www.chartsantafe.com. It's a big report. It's a comprehensive report. I think you're going to include a link to that. And so it's in five sections, culture, history, art, reconciliation, and truth. Um, and there's a lot of information there, and there are a lot of quotes from Santa Fe. And there's a 20-page appendix um, that has recommendations from participants. So it's very, very robust. But one thing overall that people agreed with is that we're still in the truth-telling part of this process. 
So participants um, understood and engaged with the difficulty of all of these issues, many of which have been spoken by the panelists today or everybody, your guests today, and I really appreciate. But Santa Feans overall um, really want a better telling of history that is much more inclusive and reckons with the past. At the same time, Santa Feans also realize that reconciliation is going to take decades, you know, year after year of engaging with these difficult questions of confronting the truth, but also of moving forward. So there's a whole sections in the report in the truth section that deal with racism, with inequity, with housing, all of those things. There are 52 recommendations in the report. But what's important is that um, many of the views or all of the views expressed today by your guests and people have called in um, were reflected in what we heard from people over the course of 12 months. It's not a kumbaya. Nobody agreed. They, they agreed that this is tough. And staying with the difficult conversations is really important and, um, you know, really promoting a fuller understanding of history is important to people. But there was also a commitment to doing the work of trying to get to a place where people really listen to each other and accept the truths of the past and try to move forward as a community, a diverse community. Okay, it kind of seems like maybe there are then two parts to the project, one listening and gathering voices, but then kind of finding uh, a way forward. And there's such different projects. Um I'm wondering what kinds of things you found after all that that listening and all that research. Uh, how, how what ideas do people have about moving forward? Well, one of the things is that you know about seven options, for example, around Soldiers Monument. We heard over the course of the 12 months. So the second survey asked a direct question about Soldiers Monument. And the the responses coalesced around two different um, sort of resolutions to that. So the report recommends that the city of Santa Fe immediately implement a process of continued community engagement and dialogue to try to to address those. Uh, the other 52 recommendations have to do what people said about um, the city of Santa Fe uh, creating a new general plan, which hasn't been done for over a decade, that addresses issues like race and inequity in the community. The community also expressed a desire for more multicultural events that include the contemporary diversity of Santa Fe, not the tricultural myth. Many of our participants really talked about the tricultural myth and how damaging it is, how it marginalizes other people who live in Santa Fe or residents who are from African-American, Asian-American, and other backgrounds. People wanted opportunities for people to get to know people and engage in dialogue with them. So um, the report is, is really has many, many recommendations that are really how to take step forward, step forward right now. And so we really want to encourage the city of Santa Fe governing body to take up those 52 recommendations and at the very least tell the city of Santa Fe and the participants in chart what's going to happen with those. Okay. I want to go to Elena Ortiz from Red Nation. I know that I believe you're unhappy with the chart program in part because there was no concrete action at the end, but instead maybe a series of recommendations and some dialogues. Is there any value there? 
I think direct action is the only way to make changes. And the city of Santa Fe, it, its very existence is a violation um, of Pueblo existence. And the very fact of walking down on the plaza and seeing all of the multi-million dollar galleries and shops um, that are selling, they're making their living, making people rich off of native um, wares and the commodification of native culture, where while our people live downstream from Los Alamos and are poisoned daily by the water um, and the air in the Four Corners, which has the largest methane gas cloud um, in the United States, um, our people are being poisoned in our own homelands while people in Santa Fe are getting rich and our relatives are sitting on the ground under the palace of the governors. I mean, those are the things that need to be addressed. There's an inequity that comes from a community that earns its living off of commodifying native culture, but denies our history and erases our history daily with monuments and school names and street names to Vargas Mall um, for one. And there was a call for Vargas Mall to change their name that never happened. So recommendations to the city of Santa Fe is like dropping water into a well. And the city of Santa Fe are the perpetrators of this violence and the, and the perpetuators of this violence against Native people. So direct action is the only way to, to change things. And, you know, until we see some type of truth um, come out of, of Santa Fe and some sort of um, reckoning, then nothing is going to change. And you can recommend all you want, but the city of Santa Fe is never going to change as long as the mayor's position and the city council's position are continuing to be funded by tourism coming into Santa Fe based on the commodification of native cultures. Okay, the music's coming up in the background. We've run out of time this hour. I want to thank everyone who called in or tweeted or emailed us. A big thank you to our guests, Aime Villarreal, Elena Ortiz, Andrew Lovato, and Valerie Martinez. Uh, we have a lot of links on our website, KUNM.org. Look for the page for this show. Uh, among them are the final report from the Chart Project. KUNM will keep adding to coverage of culture and monuments in our news coverage. Please keep sharing your thoughts with us on Twitter, hashtag Let's Talk NM. On Facebook, search for KUNM Radio or email us, Let's Talk at KUNM.org. If you missed part of the show, we'll have audio up on our website soon. You can also subscribe to the Let's Talk New Mexico podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Our engineer this morning is Marino Spencer. Bryce Dix handled the phones today. Taylor Velasquez live tweeted for us and Megan Kamrick produced the show. I'm Kaveh Movahead. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM.